Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. Nikki Haley vowing to stay in the fight after losing the presidential primary in her home state. We're joined live by South Carolina Congressman Ralph Norman to discuss where to from here. Ronna McDaniel reportedly stepping down as chairwoman of the Republican National Committee. Find out who she's tapping to pick the party's next leader and why. With Tuesday's primary in Michigan happening tomorrow, we hear what voters on the streets of Detroit have to say about the presidential election. An active duty U.S. Air Force member has died after setting himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C. We have the latest on the incident. Denmark today closing its investigation into the Nord Stream pipeline's explosion. That resu the results of that probe and what's next in the case. We have the details. And Floridians sumo wrestle, play chicken coop bingo, and join in other eccentric games. The inaugural Florida Man Games celebrate a unique culture. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Hi, I'm David Lamb. I'm sitting in for Chris Beers. And to begin the show, Ronna McDaniel is reportedly stepping down as chairwoman of the Republican National Committee. She says she'll let the GOP nominee for president pick a new leader. Multiple outlets are reporting that McDaniel plans to resign after Super Tuesday on March 5th. As she put it, the RNC has historically undergone change. Once we have a nominee, and it has always been my intention to honor that tradition, she said. Former President Trump chose McDaniel to be chairwoman after the 2016 election. That was after the previous leader left the post to become Trump's White House chief of staff. Many Republicans criticized McDaniel after the 2022 midterms. The GOP lost several critical Senate and governor's races in that election. Two weeks ago, Trump endorsed North Carolina GOP chairman Michael Watley as the next RNC chair. He also advocated for his daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, to be co-chair. And a member of the RNC wants to prohibit the party from paying former President Trump's legal bills. Mississippi committeeman Henry Barber submitted multiple resolutions which have to gain more support to move forward. Barber says the party's job is to win elections, not to pay legal bills for the leading candidate. He now needs to get two co-sponsors from 10 different states by Tuesday for the resolutions to proceed to a full committee vote. This comes after Lara Trump said she thinks Republican voters would support having the RNC pay the former president's legal fees. Trump's lawyers want Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis to testify again due to new evidence in her disqualification hearing. They point to information from a private investigator concerning cell phone data. The data allegedly shows Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade visiting Willis's home multiple times in 2021, including twice late at night. Lawyers representing the Fulton County DA's office are pushing back on allegations from Trump and his co-defendants. They're challenging the notion that the cell phone data suggests the relationship between Willis and Wade started prior to the time they both testified to last week. Judge Scott McAfee will reportedly speak with Nathan Wade's former attorney and business partner, Terrence Bradley, in a closed-door meeting today. And former President Trump secured another decisive victory in the Republican primaries this weekend. 
The undefeated GOP candidate beat former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley in her home state. Trump received around 60% of the vote. Haley had roughly 40%. She's promising to stay in the race, at least until Super Tuesday, March 5th. But Haley lost an important source of funding for her campaign yesterday. The, the influential Koch Network pulled support for her campaign after the loss. The group's political arm, AFP Action, says it will now focus on Senate and House races instead. Trump has swept primaries in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada, and is looking at Michigan next. He says he's never seen the Republican Party as unified as it is right now. NCD's Jeremy Sandberg has more reactions to this weekend's election results. The reason I do that is... Senator John Thune, the second-highest-ranked Republican in the upper chamber, threw his support behind Trump's Sunday. Ladies and gentlemen! Thune stated the results of South Carolina's primary make it clear Trump will be the Republican nominee. The minority whip previously endorsed Senator Tim Scott's presidential campaign before Scott dropped out. Trump has Scott on his shortlist of potential VPs. Thune says the U.S. cannot endure another four years of Bidenomics, lawlessness at the southern border, and weakness on the global stage. Trump says his campaign is now focusing on defeating President Biden on November 5th. And we're going to say, Joe, you're fired. Get out. Get out, Joe. You're fired. GOP challenger Nikki Haley congratulated Trump after losing in her home state. And I want to thank the people of South Carolina for using the power of your voice. She vowed to continue the race and is now campaigning in Michigan ahead of its primary on Tuesday. We're headed to the Super Tuesday states throughout all of next week. Haley maintains she's the GOP candidate able to beat Biden in the general election and that results show voters want an alternative. Americans for Prosperity, or AFP, the political arm of the powerful Koch network, pulled the plug on donations to Haley's campaign Sunday after her loss. The group's CEO says while it still supports Haley's efforts to stay in the race, it doesn't believe any outside group can expand her path to victory at this point. AFP Action endorsed Haley in November to provide a significant boost to her campaign. The group says it will spend resources where it can make a difference and focus on upcoming Senate and House races instead. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And joining us live to discuss is Congressman Ralph Norman. Welcome, Congressman. Now, you're well, the glad only... Glad to be with you. Yeah, great to have you with us. Now, I just want to start with the fact that you're the only U.S. representative from South Carolina who has endorsed Nikki Haley. So what's your stance on why she should stay in the race? Well, first of all, uh, I want to congratulate President Trump. He had a, he's, he's had good wins. We would have loved to have won South Carolina. But uh, the good news is record number of people voted. You know, I think in the Democratic primary, they only had 131, 135,000 people vote. We had over 700,000 people vote, voted. Uh, I'll say Nikki did, did not get beat by 30 points. She got beat by 20. Obviously, we'd have loved to have had it closer or won it. But uh, competition is good. And, you know, what, what stops most candidates or makes them get out early is money or support. And Nikki has got money and she's got some support, but we'll play it out. It's still early. Uh, only four states have cast their ballot, so to speak. Trump's got 110 delegates. Haley's got 20. And, uh, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, I think it's great that she's staying in and we'll see how it plays out uh, right, through so Super Tuesday. Yeah, so you, you're saying that there's still the potential for her to pull ahead. Is that right? What do you think of this, this outcome, essentially? Here's what I know. If she gets out, she's got zero chance. If she stays in it, 
uh, and takes her vision and her message to the American people, uh, let them decide as they have. And now we realize it's an uphill climb, but Nikki has never qu quit on anything. She's got the courage to do it. And, th you know, thank God she's given people a choice. So, uh, you know, in, if you look at history, President Trump uh, only secured the, enough delegates to win in May in 2016. This is February. So we'll see how it plays out. Let's, let, let's take it to the American people and let them decide. And I do think Nikki Haley continues to show where she will beat Joe Biden, the biggest or whoever is the ultimate nominee for the Democrat Party. And so what do you think the GOP needs to do going forward uh, into the, the race ahead to, to come to a win in the end? Well, the GOP is going to get, is, will be united. If, if President Trump continues to win and secures the 22-15 delegates necessary, we'll all get behind him, Nikki as well. But it's, it's still too early to, to get, you know, to, to, for Nikki to get out. And I've never seen as many people that are upset with the direction of this country. It, you have Democrats and you have Republicans alike who are worried about America. They're worried about our freedom. And that's why we've got to have a choice, and let's, let's see how it plays out uh, until Super Tuesday. For sure. And it looks so far, obviously, that former President Trump has been ahead in, in each of the, the votes so far. Uh, but a, a CNN poll, an exit poll from the South Carolina ballot on Saturday was saying that 4 in 10 of Haley's voters voted not so much necessarily for Haley but against Trump. What do you say to that? You know, I, I think that's going to change. I think, again, the, what's happening to this country, most people are worried about keeping our constitutional republic. And I think that'll change. That would be a sad day in America if people stay at home with just because they don't like somebody. Look at the policies uh, President Trump had during the four years. They were great. Nikki Haley's policies will be great. So anything is better than, than Joe Biden or whoever's running the country. And, uh, it, and a lot of things can change. Well, that's true. And in many senses, Nikki Haley and President, former President Trump shared quite a few of their policy platforms. So we'll have to see how this all pans out. But thank you very much, Congressman Ralph Norman of South Carolina. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's one of the largest gatherings of conservatives in the nation. Just outside of Washington, D.C., this year's Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, concluded over the weekend. Entity's Jack Bradley was there. CPAC just wrapped up here on Saturday, just outside of D.C., where thousands of conservatives gathered to listen to like-minded people about values and issues that matters most to them, uh, including immigration and the upcoming election in November. Uh, here's some highlights from that. The first and most urgent action when we win will be the Sealing of the border, stopping the invasion, drill, baby, drill, send Joe Biden's illegal aliens back home. We'll do a lot of all of those things. No dejen avanzar el socialismo. Don't let socialism advance. No avalen la regulación. Don't endorse regulation. No avalen la idea de los fallos de mercado. Don't endorse the idea of market failure. I don't like knowing that Arizona is the hub for human trafficking, child sex trafficking, and drug trafficking.
It's frankly horrific. And I know you all see it, whatever state you're in, you are feeling the effects of this wide open border. I spoke to several conservative leaders here at CPAC who are talking about issues related to the upcoming November election. Take a look at some of those. President Trump is going to be the nominee of the Republican Party. The only person that doesn't realize that in America is Nikki Haley herself. And it's such a shame that she is preventing our party from fully unifying around President Trump so we can take the fight to Joe Biden, who is, by the way, completely unable and unfit to lead this country. It's not about age between President Trump and Joe Biden. It is about cognitive ability. Do we continue to fund a war that has nothing to do with America? No, we don't. We're spending money to secure the borders of another nation when it's our own borders that our taxpayers' money should be going towards. So I've never supported the continuation of funding to Ukraine. My expectation is we're going to see Donald Trump in court more. We're going to see more, you know, more focus on these very, very extraordinary, imbalanced, outrageous judgments against him. And I think independent voters more and more in a growing sense are going to look at that and say, yeah, I can't stand for that anymore. And that wraps up this year's CPAC. Certainly an important event for this conservative movement. Jack Bradley, NTD News. Voters in the battleground state of Michigan are already casting their gaze on the general election. That's as their state heads to the primary polls tomorrow. NTD's Daniel Monahan brings us more on the mood on the streets of Detroit. Former President Trump easily swept all five Republican nominating contests thus far knocking out every challenger along the way, with only former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley still standing. 21-year-old Seth Martinez says the country is getting more divisive. It's just been getting crazier each year, I mean, if you just think about it, because everyone, there's always something different. It's just Martinez been... says he is still undecided and is hoping to see more from President Biden. I got to hope maybe he's going to have a change of attitude or something to show that he is actually invested in pushing past the identity politics of coming for, oh, Trump's the bad guy that's coming to destroy everything. Detroit retiree Eric Esser says he and his wife became poll workers for the first time four years ago. Certainly uh, doing everything in our part to um, do what we feel is right to keep Trump out of office. Student Izzy Misak says people in her community find voting very important. Well, out of the two, Biden is the better, but no one really likes Biden, but would prefer him over a Republican or Trump. Michigan entrepreneur Charles Cousin says Biden has been pouring a lot of money into the state. Like he's been visiting us a lot right now. So I think that's cool, but I mean, either way, it doesn't make much of a difference to me. Some members of Michigan's Muslim community are upset over President Joe Biden and what they see as his role in the Israel-Hamas war. Dr. Mohammed Alam says Muslim Americans collected over 300,000 signatures for Donald Trump's impeachment, but now realize the world was more peaceful under his presidency. Alam says he will be voting for Trump. Then we equate that there is not a single bomb in the world has dropped by Donald Trump. Student Mahmouda Chaudhuri says she doesn't support U.S. tax dollars going towards Israel for what she calls the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. We need to show President Biden and all the other candidates that we support Palestine. The student says she will be voting uncommitted. Both Democrats and Republicans will hold nominating contests on Tuesday. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And in New Jersey, an update in the Senate race to replace indicted Senator Bob Menendez, who hasn't confirmed if he'll seek re-election.
Congressman Andy Kim secured his third consecutive win at a county convention, defeating his main opponent, Tammy Murphy, for the Democratic nomination. Murphy is the wife of New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy. Kim's victory yesterday faced a brief challenge. The county chair and ally of Murphy proposed changing the rules. The suggestion was to allow candidates with 30% of the vote to share the valuable primary ballot position, known as the county line. Despite initial chaos and opposition from delegates, the proposal was rejected. Kim's win in Hunterdon County presented a unique test, as neither Kim nor Murphy have strong political ties there. Coming up, the growing threat of a government shutdown. President Biden is calling a meeting with congressional leaders as a key funding deadline looms at the end of the week. And the U.S. Supreme Court hearing arguments in cases related to social media and content moderation. Can platforms decide what content goes on their sites and what can be removed? The court's decisions could reshape the Internet. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. The U.S. Air Force member who set himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy in D.C. yesterday has died. In a video of the incident, he could be heard yelling, Free Palestine, after igniting the flames. The man was taken to the hospital after the fire was put out by authorities. The U.S. Air Force confirmed that he's an active duty service member from Texas. The Air Force is waiting to release the man's name until they inform the next of kin. No one on the embassy grounds was hurt. The incident remains under investigation. The co-chair of Harvard University's newly formed task force fighting anti-Semitism abruptly stepped down yesterday. Harvard Business School professor Raphael Sadoun resigned after barely a month in the role. Harvard's interim president Alan Garber says the professor decided to refocus her efforts on her research, teaching and administrative duties. Harvard remains under scrutiny from politicians, regulators, alumni and others. A group of Jewish alumni are now auditing Harvard to identify sources of anti-Semitism. A congressional committee investigating campus anti-Semitism issued multiple subpoenas to Harvard earlier this month, requesting documents. The Department of Education is also investigating the Ivy League school separately over its handling of alleged discrimination on campus. That's after a complaint was filed against Harvard by Muslim and Palestinian students last month. Garber announced the formation of the anti-Semitism task force just over a month ago. Sadoun is being replaced as co-chair by Harvard Law Professor Jared Elias. Garber also announced selections for a separate task force designed to fight anti-Muslim and anti-Arab bias. Political advisor Steve Kramer admitted on Sunday that he was behind the fake phone call mimicking President Biden's voice using artificial intelligence. The Democratic operative confirmed this after he was named in a report from NBC News. Kramer showed no regret for making the fake call where a voice that sounded like the president's urged people not to vote in New Hampshire's Democratic primary causing uproar among officials and watchdogs. Kramer says he did it to draw attention to the risks of AI in politics, likening himself to historical figures like Paul Revere. The political consultant insisted that his actions were not linked to the candidate he was working for, Congressman Dean Phillips. Phillips condemned the calls, saying neither he nor his campaign had knowledge of them. And New Orleans magician said last week that Kramer hired him to create the audio for the calls. 
And the U.S. Supreme Court today will hear arguments on whether to give states more control over social media platforms. Some believe its, a, its decision could transform the internet as we know it. Texas and Florida want to impose restrictions on content moderation on platforms like Meta, TikTok, and YouTube. The states want to prevent companies from removing posts that they deem harmful. In 2021, Texas Gre Governor Greg Abbott signed a law making it illegal for social media platforms to, quote, discriminate against expression. But some in the tech industry say such laws violate companies' First Amendment rights to decide what speech is welcome on their platform. They say that forcing platforms to allow potentially offensive material amounts to compelled speech. But several other states have backed Texas and Florida's decisions, saying social media companies should be regulated the same way as other public utilities. And Texas Governor Greg Abbott has voiced a similar stance to former President Donald Trump in the wake of a ruling on embryos from the Alabama Supreme Court. The court ruled this month that frozen embryos are children under state law. The ruling means clinics that discard embryos could be held liable for wrong deaths. Several clinics in the state have paused in vitro fertilization treatments, or IVF, following the court's decision. The IVF process is a way of giving life uh, to even more babies. Uh, and so what, what I think the goal is, uh, is to, to make sure uh, that we can find a pathway uh, to ensure that parents who otherwise may not have the opportunity to have a child will be able to have access to the IVF process and become parents and give life to babies. On Friday, Trump wrote on Truth Social urging Alabama to protect IVF treatments. Critics say the ruling could make access to IVF treatments much more complicated and potential legal liabilities for clinics could drive up the costs of IVF services. And new information about the suspect in last week's death of a Georgia nursing student. Immigration and Customs Enforcement now confirming that the suspect did enter the U.S. illegally. The confirmation came shortly after he appeared in court on Saturday. Uh, Mr. Ibarra has been charged with malice murder, felony murder, aggravated battery, aggravated assault, false imprisonment, kidnapping, obstructing an emergency call, and concealing the death of another person. Lake and Riley was found dead on the University of Georgia campus on Thursday after going for a run. She was a junior at Augusta University's nursing college. ICE now says the suspect entered the U.S. illegally in 2022. He was then paroled and released for further processing. The Venezuelan native was also arrested in New York last September. Authorities charged him with acting in a manner to injure a child as well as vehicle license violation. Normally, ICE lodges a detainer when illegal immigrants are being arrested on criminal charges, but sanctuary cities generally restrict law enforcement from complying with such detainers. And President Biden will visit the U.S.-Mexico border on Thursday, the same day former President Trump plans to visit. Biden will meet with Border Patrol agents and local leaders to discuss the need for funding and reforms to secure the border. Trump will deliver remarks in Texas. New York City will cut spending on migrants. Mayor Eric Adams made the announcement last week. Entity's Chris Beers spoke with New York City Councilwoman Vicki Palladino about the move. New York City Councilwoman Vicki Palladino, thank you so much for joining us. 
New York Mayor Eric Adams says he won't cut the budget by 5% and that he would cut uh, $600 million worth of housing funding for migrants. What do you think about his move? Uh, well, any cut he does to the migrants uh, and feeding them and, and housing them and saves us money, I'm 100% in favor of uh, because the city has taken a very large hit because of this migrant crisis. It's tremendous. Uh, it's put such a strain on the everyday New Yorker and the taxpayers. Uh, I, on the bright side, I'm all for it. Uh, if we're going to cut the migrant spending in any way, shape, or form in order to put back into our system and give our taxpayers what we need in order to survive here in the city, uh, I'm all for it. I think it's great. We're now hearing about these physical confrontations between cops and migrants on Randall's Island, and there's so many other confrontations we've been hearing about recently. Um, how far does this migrant crisis in New York City have to go before the city changes course on its sanctuary city policies? Well, I hope not too much further. But then again, we have failed leadership. We have failed leadership at the state level. I blame Governor Hochul for a great deal of everything, our misery here in New York City. I'm putting this on the doorstep of, of our governor because she could certainly be proactive. She could, re, she could reinstate ICE. We are importing crime. We are importing third world country uh, acts of violence, moped gangs, beating up cops and thinking they could get away with it. They're spitting in the eyes of the New York City cops. And New York City Councilwoman Vicki Palladino, thank you so much. That's all we have time for. Thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. A trial could start next month in a case involving so-called ghost guns. A Brooklyn man is facing 18 years in prison for the possession of weapons he made as part of his machining hobby. Entity's Daniel Monahan spoke with Dexter Taylor and his attorney about the case. Ghost guns are kits sold online that allow users to put together a complete firearm. With no serial numbers, background checks, or records of transfer, they are harder to trace. Software engineer Dexter Taylor is known online as the conservative political commentator Carbon Mike. I grew up as a working class kid in Queens, New York. My dad was in the union. He was a carpenter. Uh, my mom was a nurse. The more I started identifying with this stuff, I realized, oh, wait a minute, like, that's what conservatism is. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like I grew up in a household where everyone was fanatical about education. And all my friends at school, it was the same thing. Like all, all the black kids I know, everyone, you know, we all went to Sunday school. You know? The 52-year-old says he loved taking his toys apart and putting them back together as a kid. I was always into Legos as a kid. I was always building or inventing something in my bedroom. Um, I was, you know, I, I had a subscription to Popular Science Magazine. I was always into engines and race cars and tanks and planes and rifles and all that stuff. After seeing a marine gun builder on his YouTube feed, Taylor says he became fascinated. He ended up gunsmithing about six or seven pistols and eight AR-style rifles in his basement machine shop. Taylor says he was working on what he thought would be his portfolio for a second career as a weapon scientist. All that ended in 2022, when New York City police officers arrived at his apartment with a search warrant, recovering five handguns and four rifles, along with a 3D printer. He spent about a week on Rikers Island and now faces 18 years in prison. 
Taylor had no prior criminal history and says the guns never left his home, nor did he ever post pictures of them online. Taylor says he's being charged solely for exercising his fundamental right to bear arms. His attorney, Venu Varghese, is seeking to get the charges dismissed. He should not be, be prosecuted for this because of the individual's right to bear arms reaffirmed in the Bruin decision last year. So in that case, the U.S. Supreme Court knocked down New York's licensing regime. New York responded to the high court's ruling by enacting new licensing laws. And Varghese says those allowed even fewer people to obtain firearms legally in the state. The attorney argues Taylor's Second Amendment rights are being violated because applying for a license under the strict New York regulations would be fruitless. We showed by, by doing a FOIL request on the NYPD, which issues licenses, we showed that they're just not giving out license, the, you know, permits. And so in, in 21, they gave out 19, only 19% of the applications were approved. In 22, the two years that Dexter was being looked at, they only gave out 4%. In October last year, the Supreme Court permitted the Biden administration to maintain its regulation of ghost guns. This, as the legal challenge initiated by firearm manufacturers, unfolds in the lower courts. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up, farmers setting tires on fire in Brussels as EU officials meet to address their concerns. More on the latest of many protests by farmers across the Europe. Hungary is expected to ratify Sweden's historic NATO bid today, clearing the last hurdle. What Hungary's prime minister says about the decision when we return. President Biden will host a crucial meeting tomorrow with top congressional leaders to avoid a government shutdown. Congress has until Friday to pass a funding deal, and federal agencies that will be impacted are updating their shutdown plans. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer gave an update over the weekend. Schumer said Sunday congressional negotiators have not yet reached a deal on a government funding bill. One of the major issues under debate is $118 billion in aid for Ukraine. It's something many Democrats and Republicans are pushing for. Not only the future of Ukraine is on the line, which is extremely important, uh, but the larger battle uh, against authoritarian is, authoritarianism is on the line. He blamed chaos within the House Republican Conference for the delay. That's as Speaker Mike Johnson said House Republicans will continue to work in good faith and hope to reach an outcome as soon as possible. This will be the fourth time since September that lawmakers have been up against a funding deadline. Lawmakers keep passing short-term stopgap deals. In January, they extended some funding for veterans affairs, agriculture, housing, and urban development through March 1st. Funding for the rest of the government expires March 8th. Many Republicans don't want to pass a spending plan until they see changes in immigration and border security. You either secure the border or you get no money for the government. Congressional leaders are expected to meet with President Biden on Tuesday to talk about Ukraine and government funding. And California Congresswoman Barbara Lee recently argued that the minimum wage in the United States should be $50 an hour. Is this a good idea? And what will be the impact on the economy if this was the case? Entity's Don Ma speaks to a risk consultant for more. 
And now joining us is Derek Giorgino, NTD contributor and risk consultant in the greater LA area. So it seems like a uh, Democrat in California is saying they uh, they want to raise the minimum wage to $50 an hour. Uh, how do you feel about that to start off? Yeah, Don, it's a patently absurd suggestion. Uh, a progressive Democrat, Barbara Lee, who is running for Adam Schiff's Senate seat uh, out of California has proposed a $50 minimum wage. Uh, part of this could be because she's trying to jump the shark as she's fourth in polling with a long shot chance at that seat. But she's not far off from her Democrat colleagues who are also running for that seat, as Adam Schiff and Katie Porter have suggested anywhere from $20 to $25 federal minimum wage. We're not talking about the California state minimum wage. We're talking about the federal minimum wage. I think these candidates ought to change their their campaign slogan uh, to the fight for $15 Big Macs. <laughs> I think that would be more appropriate, obviously, a riff from the fight for 15 uh, minimum wage that occurred a number of years ago. But uh, you have three candidates running for that Senate seat right now, all of whom have proposed significant hikes in the federal minimum wage. I mean, $50 an hour uh, to some people. I mean, this seems like a good idea. Why not? Well, I think a lot of folks have an underappreciation, Don, for how complicated supply chains are, not just here, uh, but globally. Um, I encourage all of your viewers, there's a great video out there about how the number two pencil is made and how it comes to be uh, from the woods uh, into our hands as we write down things. Um, to cut the wood, to paint the wood, to mine the graphite, to form the metal around the eraser, to form the rubber and cut the eraser for your pencil. All of these things involve labor cost. And labor cost is an immense cost burden for small and big businesses alike who are trying to produce goods and services. Goods and services, Don, don't grow on trees. Uh, a lot like how people think money grows on trees, the same people who've ballooned our debt to over $33 trillion. But supply chains are highly complex. When you do something like this, you disrupt the supply chain, you introduce artificial labor costs to the economy, and it drives up cost of living. Well, all right, Derek, as always, thanks for your time. I appreciate it, Don. Thanks for having me on, as always. Farmers today dumped tires on the streets of the Belgian capital before setting them on fire. It's the latest of many protests by farmers across Europe. Competition from cheap food imports, excessive environmental rules, they say, and subsidies favoring large firms are behind the demonstrations. Here's more. Europe saw yet more dramatic farmer protests on Monday. Demonstrators in Belgium dumped tires in the capital and set them alight. The road leading from the EU district to central Brussels was also clogged by columns of tractors. All this was just a short distance from where EU agricultural ministers were due to meet Monday to discuss how to respond to farmers' demands. Ministers are due to debate a new set of proposals to ease the pressure on the sector. It includes a reduction in farm inspections and the possibility of exempting small farms from some environmental standards. Protests have taken place for weeks in a number of EU member states, including France, Germany, Spain, Greece and more. Poland also saw action over the weekend. Farmers there used tractors to block a key crossing into Germany, sparking traffic chaos. Europe's farmers have a variety of demands. They argue they're struggling with rising costs and taxes, tough environmental rules and competition from cheap food imports. 
And staying in Europe, we have some short headlines from Denmark, Spain, and other countries. Denmark today closing its investigation into the explosions that damaged the Nord Stream gas pipelines. Authorities say they concluded there was deliberate sabotage, but they didn't find enough evidence to pursue a criminal case. Denmark is now the second nation to end the investigation after Sweden closed its inquiry earlier this month. Germany is the third and last country to continue the investigation. A Danish official today suggested that he doesn't think Germany will be able to find much more evidence than the other two nations did. The Nord Stream pipelines transporting Russian gas to Germany were damaged in September 2022. This came seven months after Russia invaded Ukraine. And Hungary is expected to ratify Sweden's NATO bid today. Sweden joining NATO would be a historic step. The Nordic country remained neutral through two world wars in the Cold War. Sweden abandoned its non-alignment policy after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Stockholm announced its decision at the same time as Finland, which became a NATO member last year. But Sweden was kept waiting as Turkey and Hungary raised objections to the bid. Today's vote by the Hungarian parliament is expected to end months of delays to comp to complete Sweden's accession to the military alliance. Hungary's Prime Minister spoke on the decision earlier today. Check it out. We support that the accession should happen. NATO is a defensive alliance. We make alliances to defend each other in the case of an outside attack. No commitment is more serious than that. The president of Belarus announced he'll run for re-election next year. That's according to the country's state news agency. Alexander Lukashenko has ruled Belarus since 1994. He's one of Russian President Vladimir Putin's closest allies. Lukashenko sent a message to exiled opposition leaders on Sunday. He directed journalists to let the opposition know he'll run again. One of France's most wanted fugitives was caught in a bar in Spain. Body cam footage shows the moment Spanish police stormed the establishment and arrested the suspect. He was facing a 10-year prison sentence. That's for drug trafficking, illegal possession of weapons, crimes against public order and membership in a criminal organization. The fugitive operate, operated mainly in Marseille, France. He fled from a police operation that took place in France last March. And up ahead, experts now saying we may need more than just physical rest to recharge and rebalance. A psychologist tells us about the different types of rest people could be missing. Floridians sumo wrestle, play chicken coop bingo, and other eccentric games. The inaugural Florida Man Games celebrate a unique culture. More shortly, here on NTD News Today. Do you feel tired even after eight hours of sleep? Experts say without a balance of things such as mental or sensory rest, one's body can be misaligned. Earlier, I spoke with Dr. Shannon Crawford, psychologist and CEO of Crawford Clinics for Insight. Dr. Crawford, thank you for joining us and your background looks amazing by the way, I just wanna say. So how does, does sleep uh, does more sleep necessarily equal more energy? Break that down for us. 
Absolutely not. We are creatures of balance and we're looking for homeostasis, which just means you're putting everything back into right alignment. So if we go too far into the ditch of workaholism and not sleeping enough, that's dangerous, but also sleeping too much and getting too much sedentary time, that's dangerous. And it's actually cardiovascularly been referenced as sitting is the new smoking. And so we're hearing this trend on TikTok called bed rotting, where people are trying to call it self-care when really just staying in bed all day on a device, not moving, not getting exercise, trying to sleep during the day causes insomnia at night, more likely to produce depression, anxiety symptoms. So sleep is fantastic, but we need to make sure we're getting a good balance. So it sounds like a, so on the concept of the seven types of rest, this does is this the physical side you'd say and in which would you say people have the most deficit of Oh, that's such a great question. So on my podcast, Unlock You with Dr. Shannon Crawford, we had the founder, Dr. Sandra Dalton-Smith. She's amazing and she described the seven kinds of rest. And so there's the physical kind, so sleeping, laying down, stretching, yoga, anything that's just kind of letting your body come down to rest. Also a leisurely slow paced walk could be a part of that. And then we have the mental kind where you're turning your thoughts off. You're not analyzing, fixing. You don't have the inner dictator, perfectionist running your thoughts anymore. We have the emotional rest where I'm taking off the responsibility of caring other people and their emotions. We're not being codependent and we're just creating space for our emotions to rest. It's also a great time to journal and process. And then we have this um, solitary where you're allowing yourself to have sensory rest. And that's one of the reasons bed rotting is not good for us. Many times people are watching something or they're scrolling social media. So you're not getting silence, solitude, and sensory rest to just clear your thoughts and allow yourself to be replenished. Right, so what can people do today, like right from their homes after the discussion for holistic health and, and better rest? I know you mentioned that we have a sedentary lifestyle as, the, um, as it is in society. I mean, what's your, what can people do? Yeah, I highly recommend taking micro breaks. So just even in the middle of a workday, taking deep cleansing breaths, erasing the chalkboard of your mind where you don't have to think. One of our other types of rest is a creative type of rest, which also falls under problem solving and demanding of yourself to create or innovate or think of how to solve or fix something. So it's just like a couple seconds to just clear your mind, take deep cleansing breaths. I personally visualize unzipping at my belly button, taking that layer of protection off over my heart, my brain, kind of peeling layers off. If you have an opportunity to go outside, to be in sunlight, to get a little bit of light movement, that can release endorphins, vitamin D, all of which have been proven to help with mood. Those little things you can build into your life. Obviously, there's a lot more we want to do, but just those few little things will make a huge impact if you can build that in throughout your day. Dr. Shannon Crawford, thank you so much for your insight. You're a psychologist and CEO of Crawford Clinics, and people can find you at crawfordclinics.com. Thank you again. And the National Museum Scotland has unveiled what it called 240 million year old dragon for the first time in its entirety. 
The approximately 15-foot-long reptile fossil from the Triassic period was first identified in China in 2003. Newly discovered fossils allowed the international team of researchers to de depict the entire creature. Scientists say it's very reminiscent of a Chinese dragon. The extremely long neck likely helped it to catch fish, though researchers are still unsure of its precise function. In St. Augustine over the weekend, excited Floridians sumo wrestled, played chicken coop bingo, and participated in other eccentric games. The organizer says the event celebrates the state's unique identity. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details. In Northeast Florida, Pete Melvi had a vision. He wanted to blend the outrageousness of Florida Man stories with the thrill of athletic competition. So the inaugural Florida Man games were born. What does it mean to be Florida Man? Well, there's no one standard. You can be anything. Like, just Florida a little man. bit above and beyond. Yeah, you know, level. like the, the mullet, the crazy Next hair. Level. I sleep in a hammock every night. I don't sleep in a bed. The stage was set over the weekend for a day of laughter and sporting mayhem. Competitions included sumo wrestling with beers and chicken coop bingo. So I've lived in Florida my entire life. Um, I've had the privilege, I guess you would call it, to know a couple of definitely Florida man worthy people. And I wanted to do an event where you could live a day in the life of a Florida man without going to jail for it. Participants eager to partake in the madness poured in from all around Florida. Spectators flocked to witness the spectacle as well. So I wanted to create an event that people could laugh at all day long. And we know how funny these Florida man stories are. And so this seemed like the perfect mix of laughter and athletic competition. The Florida man games kicked off with a bang, but it was the mud pool fights that were the highlight of the event. Carefree contestants flung themselves into the muck, beating each other with soft pool noodles. If you can design athletic competitions around these wild, weird Florida man stories, I guarantee you people are going to have uh, a great time. And that was kind of my thought process. And here we are. We got a huge crowd out here hanging out with us on Francis Field for the very first Florida man games. It's pretty cool. Melfi says the Florida Man game succeeded beyond his wildest dreams. He hopes the celebration of Florida's unique spirit will become an annual tradition throughout the state. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And the month of love is coming to its end with delicious heart-shaped sweetness of strawberries. That's because tomorrow is National Strawberry Day. The sweet fruit grows all year round around the world. I'll and ancient Romans believed strawberries had medicinal purposes. They prescribed them for several ailments, including sore throats, fever, and even depression. Of course, they mostly grow in winter. Today, we know that strawberries contain important nutrients we need, like vitamin C, folic acid, potassium, and fiber. And despite their name, strawberries are actually part of the rose family, which might explain their fragrant scent and bright color. So why not go enjoy National Strawberry Day by grabbing a pint of strawberries or two? And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Thank you for watching. We will have more stories from the U.S. and around the world on NTD Newsroom at 2 p.m. Eastern. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are our top stories. The former FBI informant who was charged over claims about President Biden scheduled to appear in court. What federal prosecutors are saying. 
Ronna McDaniel officially announcing she's stepping down as chairwoman of the Republican National Committee. Her decision will take effect shortly after Super Tuesday. New information about the man accused of killing a Georgia nursing student. Immigration authorities now confirming the suspect entered the U.S. illegally. Hungary is expected to ratify Sweden's historic NATO bid today, clearing the last hurdle. What Hungary's prime minister says about the decision. And baseball's slow-moving off-season spills into spring training now, as several all-star players remain unsigned. NTD's Dave Martin joins us to discuss. Exquisite, majestic, a sight to behold. That's what Detroit audience members had to say about New York-based classical Chinese dance group Shen Yun. More on their reactions to the dazzling performance. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Hi, I'm David Lamb. I'm sitting in for Chris Beers. And to begin the show, an FBI informant who is charged with lying about the Biden family business dealings is set to appear in court today. A federal judge in Los Angeles will decide whether to keep him in jail while he awaits trial. Alexander Smirnov was arrested earlier this month. Last week, a judge in Nevada released him with a GPS monitor. Smirnov worked as an informant for the FBI beginning in 2010. He claimed that President Biden and his son Hunter Biden received $5 million each in bribes from Ukrainian energy company Burisma. Federal prosecutors working on the Hunter Biden investigation said these are false claims. They also said Smirnov is likely to flee to other countries. Smirnov's allegations played a role in the House impeachment inquiry into Biden. Prosecutors said Smirnov's claims came from people associated with Russian intelligence. Congressman Jim Jordan said last week the indictment doesn't change anything in the Hunter Biden probe. When Christopher Steele lied to the FBI about uh, President Trump, he gets paid more. When Smirnov lies to the FBI about President Biden, no, oh, he gets indicted. I mean, go figure. So um, it doesn't change the, the fundamental facts. Former President Trump is appealing his verdict in the New York civil fraud case. His lawyers filed notices of appeal today. They're asking New York State's mid-level appeals court to overturn Judge Arthur Engoron's ruling. The lawyers are asking the court to decide whether Engoron committed errors of law and or fact and whether he abused his discretion or acted in excess of his jurisdiction. And Garan ruled earlier this month that Trump deceived banks and ordered him to pay $355 million in penalties. That amount has grown to $454 million with interest. If Trump is unsuccessful at the mid-level appeals court, he can ask the state's highest court, the Court of Appeals, to consider taking his case. Trump's lawyers want Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis to testify again due to new evidence in her disqualification hearing. They point to information from a private investigator concerning cell phone data. The data allegedly shows Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade visiting Willis's home multiple times in 2021, including twice at, late at night. 
Lawyers representing the Fulton County DA's office are pushing back on allegations from Trump and his co-defendants. They're challenging the notion that the cell phone data suggests the relationship between Willis and Wade started prior to the time they both testified to last week. Judge Scott McAfee will reportedly speak with Nathan Wade's former attorney and business partner Terrence Bradley in a closed-door meeting today. Ronna McDaniel is stepping down as chairwoman of the Republican National Committee. That's according to a statement she issued today. She says she'll let the GOP nominee for president pick a new leader. The resignation is effective March 8th, days after Super Tuesday. In her statement, McDaniel said the RNC has historically undergone change once we have a nominee, and it has always been my intention to honor that tradition. Former President Trump chose McDaniel to be chairwoman after the 2016 election. That was after the previous leader left the post to become Trump's White House chief of staff. Many Republicans criticized McDaniel after the 2022 midterms. The GOP lost several critical Senate and governor's races in that election. Two weeks ago, Trump endorsed North Carolina GOP chairman Michael Watley as the next RNC chair. He also advocated for his daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, to be co-chair. And a member of the RNC wants to prohibit the party from paying former President Trump's legal bills. Mississippi committeeman Henry Barber submitted multiple resolutions which have to gain more support to move forward. Barber says the party's job is to win elections, not to pay legal bills for the leading candidate. He now needs to get two co-sponsors from 10 different states by Tuesday for the resolutions to proceed to a full committee vote. This comes after Lara Trump said she thinks Republican voters would support having the RNC pay the former president's legal fees. And following the GOP's South Carolina primary, the billionaire Koch family super PAC Americans for Prosperity says it's withdrawing support for presidential hopeful Nikki Haley. She trailed former President Trump by about 20 points in her home state on Saturday. Joining us now to discuss is Dan McMillan, the founder and executive director of Save Democracy in America, a nonpartisan organization dedicated to campaign finance reform. Dan, welcome. Great to have you with us. To begin, what's the Great significance? To be with you, Absolutely. Welcome. Now, I want to start with what, what you think is the significance of this announcement for the Haley campaign. Well, it's, it's another heavy hit to their finances, it's another nail in the coffin. Uh, frankly, I think Haley should have bowed out a long time ago. This, I think, I think that Trump had this election sewn up, frankly, already last year. Once we saw that his indictments were helping him with his base rather than hurting, I don't think any of the establishment candidates like Haley and DeSantis had a chance. This is another heavy blow. On the other hand, uh, she seems to be still raising a lot of money. At the beginning of this month, she still had 13 million cash on hand. She has. She says, and by all appearances, appears to have enough money to keep fighting the campaign through Super Tuesday, to keep running ads and paying volunteers on the ground. Uh, but unless Trump gets hit by a meteorite, he's going to be the nominee. Right. There's quite the trajectory there for him, and it's clear for all to see. So we are still watching. But, you know, California Governor Gavin Newsom recently said that Nikki Haley is one of the Democrat, Democratic Party's best surrogates in the work, in the effect that her candidacy is having on Trump's candidacy. What do you have to say to that? You know, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, Newsom's arguing that by attacking Trump, by fronting against him, 
Um, she's weakening Trump. She's also, he has to spend some of his campaign money uh, to fight against her to, you know, as long as she stays in the race. So I guess there's some effectiveness. On the other hand, I think that establishment candidates like Haley tend to reinforce among voters the, the sort of the narrative that Trump is an outsider to the system running against the system that he's the people's champion against the establishment. That's always how he's positioned himself. So in some sense, people like Haley and DeSantis and the heavy donors behind them reinforce that narrative. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, on another point on, on this angle of things is that Trump is not able to get access to White House briefings while he's still in the bat this battle with Nikki Haley. What kind of impact do you think that could have on his candidacy? Well, okay. the thing is the White House briefings, that's the daily intelligence brief that the president gets. And once both parties have their presidential nominee, uh, both nominees get that brief. Uh, but on the other hand, that's all classified intelligence. So it wouldn't, hopefully, Trump would not try to use any of his ammunition in the campaign. If he did, he'd be breaking the law. Right. Okay, great point there. Uh, how do you think, just looking now at Rona McDaniel's resignation, her announcement of her re resignation, how do you think that could impact the Republican Party at this critical point? Well, it just, it further, it just further solidifies President Trump's control over the Democratic Party, the Republican Party. I'm sorry, the Republican Party has become the party of Trump. I think more than at any time in our history, we have a major political party that is fully identified with a single individual. You can almost say that Trumpism is what Republicanism is today, for better or worse, no matter how you feel about it. Yeah, and just lastly, you know, um, Nikki Haley is, is pitching herself as ensuring this element of democracy doesn't fade away in the sense that um, many Americans say they don't want to see a matchup with President Biden and former President Trump, and so she's offering more choice. Um, considering, though, that so many of the Republican voters are getting behind former President Trump, how do you see her stance in terms of protecting democracy in this aspect? Well, given how, how given that the only reason her campaign has gone this far is just being heavily bankrolled by you know billionaire mega donors like the Coke Network, for her to present herself as a champion of democracy is pretty, pretty rich. The irony is just ridiculous because, uh, you know, making yourself the creature of big donors, being a hired gun for industry, is not exactly democracy. It is true, though, that the American people very much would rather have different choices on both sides of the aisle. The fact that they don't says bad things about our political system. And this story just continues, so hopefully we'll have another chance to speak with you about it. Thank you so much, Dan McMillan, founder and executive director of Save Democracy in America. Thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. Voters in the battleground state of Michigan are already casting their gaze on the general election. That's as their state heads to the primary polls tomorrow. Entity's Daniel Monahan brings us more on the mood on the streets of Detroit. Former President Trump easily swept all five Republican nominating contests thus far, knocking out every challenger along the way, with only former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley still standing. 21-year-old Seth Martinez says the country is getting more divisive. 
It's just been getting crazier each year. I mean, if you just think about it, because everyone, there's always something different. It's just Martinez says he is still undecided and is hoping to see more from President Biden. I got to hope maybe he's going to have a change of attitude or something to show that he is actually invested in pushing past the identity politics of coming for, oh, Trump's the bad guy that's coming to destroy everything. Detroit retiree Eric Esser says he and his wife became poll workers for the first time four years ago. Certainly uh, doing everything in our part to um, do what we feel is right to keep Trump out of office. Student Izzy Misak says people in her community find voting very important. Well, out of the two, Biden is the better, but no one really likes Biden, but would prefer him over a Republican or Trump. Michigan entrepreneur Charles Cousin says Biden has been pouring a lot of money into the state. Like he's been visiting us a lot right now. So I think that's cool, but I mean, either way, it doesn't make much of a difference to me. Some members of Michigan's Muslim community are upset over President Joe Biden and what they see as his role in the Israel-Hamas war. Dr. Mohammed Alam says Muslim Americans collected over 300,000 signatures for Donald Trump's impeachment, but now realize the world was more peaceful under his presidency. Alam says he will be voting for Trump. Then we equate that there is not a single bomb in the world has dropped by Donald Trump. Student Mahmouda Chaudhuri says she doesn't support U.S. tax dollars going towards Israel for what she calls the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. We need to show President Biden and all the other candidates that we support Palestine. The student says she will be voting uncommitted. Both Democrats and Republicans will hold nominating contests on Tuesday. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. In New Jersey, an update in the Senate race to replace indicted Senator Bob Menendez, who hasn't confirmed if he'll seek re-election. Congressman Andy Kim secured his third consecutive win at a county convention, defeating his main opponent, Tammy Murphy, for the Democratic nomination. Murphy is the wife of New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy. Kim's victory yesterday faced a brief challenge. The county chair and ally of Murphy proposed changing the rules. The suggestion was to allow candidates with 30% of the vote to share the valuable primary ballot position known as the county line. Despite initial chaos and opposition from delegates, the proposal was rejected. Kim's win in Hunterdon County presented a unique test as neither Kim nor Murphy have strong political ties there. And coming up, a major shakeup in Palestinian politics. How the Palestinian Prime Minister's resignation could impact the region and the ongoing war. Now to the Israel-Hamas war. Today, a major shakeup in Palestinian territories. Palestinian Authority Prime Minister Mohammed Shtaya and his government have resigned. Shtaya announced his resignation on Facebook. He said his decision came in light of the war in Gaza and escalation in the West Bank. Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas must still decide whether he accepts Shtaya's resignation. The U.S. wants a reformed Palestinian Authority to govern Gaza once the war is over. The Palestinian Authority also wants to control Gaza after the war. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejects the idea. Abbas is expected to choose the chairman of the Palestine Investment Fund, 
Mohammed Mustafa as the next prime minister. Regarding the war in Gaza, the Israeli military has submitted a plan to evacuate the civilian population from war zones. They said an offensive on the southern city of Rafah will take place soon. The military submitted the operational plan to the War Cabinet for approval today. So far, it's unclear what the evacuation plan looks like. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu requested a plan earlier this month. Over a million Gaza residents are sheltering in Rafah. That's over half of the territory's population. And the U.S. Air Force member who set himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy in D.C. yesterday has died. In a video of the incident, he could be heard yelling, free Palestine, after igniting the flames. The man was taken to the hospital after the fire was put out by authorities. The U.S. Air Force confirmed that he's an active duty service member from Texas. The Air Force is waiting to release the man's name until they inform the next of kin. No one on the embassy grounds was hurt. The incident remains under investigation. The co-chair of Harvard University's newly formed task force fighting anti-Semitism abruptly stepped down yesterday. Harvard Business School professor Rafaela Sadun resigned after barely a month in the role. Harvard's interim president, Alan Garber, says the professor decided to refocus her efforts on her research, teaching, and administrative duties. Harvard remains under scrutiny from politicians, regulators, alumni, and others. A group of Jewish alumni are now auditing Harvard to identify sources of anti-Semitism. A congressional committee investigating campus anti-Semitism issued multiple subpoenas to Harvard earlier this month, requesting documents. The Department of Education is also investigating the Ivy League school separately over its handling of alleged discrimination on campus. That's after a complaint was filed against Harvard by Muslim and Palestinian students last month. Garber announced the formation of the anti-Semitism task force just over a month ago. Sadoun is being replaced as co-chair by Harvard law professor Jared Elias. Garber also announced sections for a selections for a separate task force designed to fight anti-Muslim and anti-Arab bias. And political advisor Steve Kramer admitted on Sunday that he was behind the fake phone call mimicking President Biden's voice using artificial intelligence. The Democratic operative confirmed this after he was named in a report from NBC News. Kramer showed no regret for making the fake call, where a voice that sounded like the president's urged people not to vote in New Hampshire's Democratic primary, causing uproar among officials and watchdogs. Kramer says he did it to draw attention to the risks of AI in politics, likening himself to historical figures like Paul Revere. The political consultant insisted that his actions were not linked to the candidate he was working for, Congressman Dean Phillips. Phillips condemned the calls, saying neither he nor his campaign had knowledge of them. A New Orleans magician said last week that Kramer hired him to create the audio for, audio for the calls. And the U.S. Supreme Court today will hear arguments on whether to give states more control over social media platforms. Some believe it's a decision that could transform the Internet as we know it. Texas and Florida want to impose restrictions on content moderation on platforms like Meta, TikTok and YouTube. The states want to prevent companies from removing posts that they deem harmful. In 2021, Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed a law making it illegal for social media platforms to, quote, discriminate against expression. But some in the tech industry say such laws violate companies' First Amendment rights to decide what speech is welcome on their platform. 
They say that forcing platforms to allow potentially offensive material amounts to compelled speech. But several other states have backed Texas and Florida's decision, saying social media companies should be regulated, regulated the same way as other public, public utilities. Officials in Louisiana are searching for an inmate who allegedly pepper sprayed a deputy after escaping from a hospital. Leon Ruffin had been in custody since July for a second-degree murder and is considered dangerous. Ruffin had been wearing a boot in his leg for an alleged injury. During the escape, he took it off and charged the deputy. Investigators say Ruffin pepper sprayed the deputy and stole her car. The deputy fired her gun, but it's unclear if Ruffin is injured. Investigators found the stolen vehicle abandoned 10 miles out of town. And new information about the suspect in last week's death of a Georgia nursing student. Immigration and Customs Enforcement now confirming that the suspect did enter the U.S. illegally. The confirmation came shortly after he appeared in court yet on Saturday. Uh, Mr. Ibarra has been charged with malice murder, felony murder, aggravated battery, aggravated assault, false imprisonment, kidnapping, obstructing an emergency call, and concealing the death of another person. Lake and Riley was found dead on the University of Georgia campus on Thursday after going for a run. She was a junior at Augusta University's nursing college. ICE now says the suspect entered the U.S. illegally in 2022. He was then paroled and released for further processing. The Venezuelan native was also arrested in New York last September. Authorities charged him with acting in a manner to injure a child, as well as a vehicle license violation. Normally, ICE lodges a detainer when illegal immigrants are being arrested on criminal charges. But sanctuary cities generally restrict law enforcement from complying with such detainers. And President Biden will visit the U.S.-Mexico border on Thursday, the same day former President Trump plans to visit. Biden will meet with Border Patrol agents and local leaders to discuss the need for funding and reforms to secure the border. Trump will deliver remarks in Texas. San Francisco is struggling with an increase in overdose deaths. During California's primary elections, voters in the city will also decide whether to mandate drug screenings for welfare recipients under 65 years old. But the measure could be blocked, even if it passes. Earlier, I spoke with Richie Greenberg, political commentator based in San Francisco, for his take. Richie, it's great to see you. Now, what is the controversy over San Francisco's drug screening mandate? Well, first, thank you for having me on uh, today. So the city has been providing money now, uh, over $700 per month, and then an additional over $100 per month to those individuals without any stipulation that they need to be in drug treatment, be screened, so that way it will try and deter. And that's the key word here, deter. And um, to, to put a little bit of accountability on these individuals, hey, why are taxpayers shelling out this money, hundreds and hundreds of dollars per month, to over 5,000 individuals right now is what, the, uh, what research has shown. So why, why is this controversial? It shouldn't be. Prop F, Mayor Lundenbreed wants to um, reduce the benefits and put people into treatment if they're tested positive during the drug screening. So how are Republicans and Democrats responding to this? For Republicans, conservatives, and many, many uh, of the 
centrist, moderate Democrats, they all agree that Prop F is a way to rein in this, this um, uncontrolled fiscal um, support of those who should be in treatment. Mm -hmm. That's where we are. Now, on the other side, those who are against Prop F, their argument doesn't really hold water because um, the two main arguments are that it's going to put an unfair burden on city employees to now have to deal with developing a screening program and to implement how, how do we get these individuals that are refusing to comply with Prop F, uh, what, what do we do with them? Now, um, speaking of security and safety, it's reported that San Francisco saw a record 806 opioid-related deaths last year. And you're a San Francisco local. What are you seeing on the streets? Yeah, so I, I agree that it is just a travesty. Some are calling it even uh, a, a death wish. This is the way that people can come to San Francisco and slowly kill themselves. That was a pretty harsh way to... But, but that, that's what seems to be happening. There is really no way to stop these individuals from uh, taking their own lives through overdose. They don't seem to care. And those who are receiving the cash benefits, there's no uh, accountability on them. So they just they just stay there. Drugs are among the cheapest, uh, the cheapest in the country. And um, we need to stop this because we see images daily. All right. Richie Greenberg, political commentator based in San Francisco. Thank you so much. More information about two Americans who may have been killed after prison escapees allegedly hijacked their yacht in Grenada. A sailing club identified the two as Kathy Brandle and Ralph Henry, a couple from Virginia. They were spending the winter cruising the Eastern Caribbean after sailing their yacht from Hampton, Virginia to Antigua. Police in Grenada said they have three men back in custody who escaped from prison last week and may have killed the couple. Brando's son told CNN evidence on the yacht suggested a violent encounter. He said there was clearly an altercation on the boat, and it appears the couple were probably injured. According to the Salty Dog Sailing Association, a passing Good Samaritan contacted it after finding the yacht abandoned off the coast of St. Vincent. The U.S. State Department says on Friday it's aware of the reports and is monitoring the situation. And coming up, the U.S. Coast Guard boarded two Chinese fishing boats near the Pacific Island nation of Kiribati, Hawaii's neighbor. That's just days after reports of Chinese police working on the island. Chaos follows a massive doctor's strike in South Korea. Protesters say officials aren't hearing their concerns as the government threatens to revoke their licenses. We'll have the details soon when we return. U.S. Coast Guard officials inspected two Chinese fishing boats with police officers of Kiribati, a Pacific island nation near Hawaii. The encounter happened during a patrol against illegal fishing in Kiribati waters, but a Coast Guard official said they found no issues aboard. It's first time in almost a decade for Kiribati police to go on patrol with U.S. Coast Guard members. The patrol took place between February 11th to 16th. It comes amid reports of Chinese police working with local authorities in Kiribati, though a joint policing deal was not formally announced. Kiribati is a strategically important country, despite being small. It's Hawaii's closest neighbor. 
controls a large exclusive economic zone and also hosts a Japanese satellite tracking station. China has been making inroads into the Pacific region. In 2022, Beijing signed a security pact with the Solomon Islands, another nation in the region. Washington said it plans to open an embassy in Kiribati to compete with Beijing, but it hasn't yet done so. South Korea's vice health minister warned young doctors taking part in a mass walkout they may lose their licenses if they don't return to work by March. Some of the protesting physicians are questioning why officials aren't hearing them out on their difficult working conditions. Trainee Dr. Ryo Okada is among thousands of young South Korean medical professionals who walked off the job this month because, they say, they're overworked, underpaid and the government's not listening to them. More specifically, they're protesting a government plan to raise the number of admissions to medical schools, which officials hope can boost the number of doctors. After the walk-off began, hospitals say they've had to turn away patients and cancel surgeries, with several issuing red alerts on Sunday as they overflowed with patients. Junior doctors are a crucial cog in South Korea's highly regarded medical system, making up 40% of staff at large teaching hospitals. But those like Ryu say the admissions plan misses the point, that officials first need to review their pay and the conditions they work under. Ryu says trainee doctors work more than 100 hours a week, making between $1,500 to some $3,000 a month, including overtime pay. A first-year resident in the United States averages about $5,000 a month, according to American Medical Association data, while half the junior doctors in the U.S. work 60 hours a week or less. That's according to the Korean Intern Resident Association, who also says intern and resident doctors in South Korea work 36-hour shifts compared to shifts of under 24 hours in the U.S. The current medical system in South Korea, which is a great one, is run by making cheap trainee doctors keep grinding. Senior doctors and private practitioners have not walked out, but have held rallies urging the government to scrap its plan to boost medical student numbers, with hundreds gathering in Seoul on Sunday. However, polls show the general population is mostly in favor of the government's plan. Authorities have ordered the protesting young doctors back to work, threatening arrest or to suspend their licenses. On Monday, the country's vice health minister gave them a deadline to return to work by March. But the doctors are asking why they aren't being heard. I wanted to become a doctor because I want to stand next to the people when they are at their most vulnerable, when they're lonely and in pain. For this reason, I decided to work at the emergency center. But the government is only pressuring trainee doctors unilaterally without dialogue and threatening to arrest us. Park Dan, who heads the Korean Intern Resident Association, says changes are needed in a system where many hospitals rely on a low-paid workforce to stay afloat. He added that doctors also want better legal protection from malpractice suits. Doctors working in internal medicine, surgery, pediatrics, obstetrics and gynecology and emergency medicine, which involve medical care directly related to patients' lives, all carry the burden of not knowing when they might face medical lawsuits. Part of the problem, Park says, is the lack of specific details on how the government plans to implement its proposed health care policies. He says it was heartbreaking for him to have to walk away from his patients. But, he says, the current system is distorted, so we need better than that. 
And heading to Europe, we have some short headlines from Denmark, Spain and other countries. Denmark today closing its investigation into the explosions that damaged the Nord Stream gas pipelines. Authorities say they concluded there was deliberate sabotage, but they didn't find enough evidence to pursue a criminal case. Denmark is now the second nation to end the investigation after Sweden closed its inquiry earlier this month. Germany is the third and last country to continue the investigation. A Danish official today suggested that he doesn't think Germany will be able to find much more evidence than the other two nations did. The Nord Stream pipelines transporting Russian gas to Germany were damaged in September 2022. This came seven months after Russia invaded Ukraine. And Hungary ratified Sweden's NATO bid today. Sweden joining NATO would be a historic step. The Nordic country remained neutral through the two world wars and the Cold War. Sweden abandoned its non-alignment policy after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Stockholm announced its decision at the same time as Finland, which became a NATO member last year. But Sweden was kept waiting as Turkey and Hungary raised objections to the bid. Today's vote by the Hungarian parliament ended months of delays to complete Sweden's accession to the military alliance. Hungary's prime minister spoke on the decision earlier today. We support that the accession should happen. NATO is a defensive alliance. We make alliances to defend each other in the case of an outside attack. No commitment is more serious than that. The president of Belarus announced he'll run for re-election next year. That's according to the country's state news agency. Alexander Lukashenko has ruled Belarus since 1994. He's one of Russian President Vladimir Putin's closest allies. Lukashenko sent a message to exiled opposition leaders on Sunday. He directed journalists to let the opposition know he'll run again. One of France's most wanted fugitives was caught in a bar in Spain. Body cam footage shows the moment Spanish police stormed the establishment and arrested the suspect. He was facing a 10-year prison sentence. That's for drug trafficking, illegal possession of weapons, crimes against public order, and membership in a criminal organization. The fugitive operated mainly in Marseille, France. He fled from a police operation that took place in France last month. And in Geneva, the International Motor Show is back today for the first time since the pandemic, but this year's lineup is limited compared to the last edition in 2019. Only around five major automakers are attending. They include French automaker Renault, Chinese EV giant BYD, and MG. There's no sign of luxury automakers like Ferrari, Lamborghini, Aston Martin, and Porsche. A jury at the show just voted for the car of the year for 2024, and it's the new Renault Scenic SUV. This marks the seventh time the French automaker bagged the trophy. Renault's CEO was excited to receive the award. At the end of the day, it's in our industry, it's all about product. So that, this is the, for me, the, let's say the proof that also on the product side, we're coming back at the level that we deserve as a company, right? And, the, and I'm not saying that. It's more than 50 expert journalists that vote the car, so I'm very reassured. Coming up, baseball's slow-moving off-season spills into spring training as several all-star players remain unsigned. NTD's Dave Martin joins us to discuss. Exquisite, majestic, a sight to behold. That's what Detroit audience members had to say about New York-based classical Chinese dance group Shen Yun. More on their reactions to the dazzling performance when we come back.
And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, plenty of sports to discuss. Now, with uh, spring training for the baseball, is baseball has already begun, but there are several all-star um, trainees that haven't been signed yet. Is this unusual? You know, for baseball, it's actually not for these free agents to take forever to sign. You know, baseball's free agency, it's really a total free market. There's no restrictions on how much money players can make or even on how much teams can spend, you know. Plus, individual team revenues, they really differ greatly from team to team depending on their team's local TV market. Uh, you know, the bigger the metropolitan area they're in, the bigger their TV deal is. So they don't have quite the national TV deals like the NFL has. Uh, so only about really a third of half of the teams actually spend a lot on players. I mean, the Tampa Bay is probably at the low end, maybe $50 million a year. The New York Mets last year were at the high end, I think it was between $350 and $400 million. So it really varies greatly. Now, just yesterday, former MVP Cody Bellinger signed an $80 million deal with the Chicago Cubs. But as you said, there's still several all-star players out there unsigned. Now, the season doesn't really start for another month still. I would guess some of them will probably wait to the very end to uh, wait out the last deals. We've seen, this, we've seen this plenty of times before in years past. Now, Dave, if baseball has more of a free market when it comes to free agents, how does that compare to the NFL or even the NBA? You know, much different. You know, the NFL has much more of a level playing field. You know, the NFL, they, their TV revenue is split evenly among all the teams. They have those huge billion-dollar TV deals with uh, na national TV deals. Plus, every NFL team, they've got a hard spending limit. It's known as a salary cap. When there's free agency, then players and agents know exactly who has money and really how much. So their free agency tends to move a lot faster. Now, the NBA, they have what's called a soft salary cap. They have a cap, but you can go over it. You'll just be you know, taxed a lot of money on it. But there's also no restrictions on how much money players can make. Um, I'm sorry, there, there is restrictions on how, how much money players can make and how long their contracts are. So for an all-star player in free agency, it's, they might get a whole bunch of maximum deals. It's just a matter of where they actually want to play. But the league also makes it so a team's original uh, team can offer more money in years than anyone else. So for these rules, it really comes down to each league's players union. The baseball players union is a much stronger union. That's why they have like no limits on spending. The NFL and NBA, you could say the owners kind of have the upper hand in negotiations there. Dave, so since we're speaking about money, John Rahm recently moved, defected from the PGA to live golf and because of money. So, I mean, how much money, more money is he making? <laughs> you know, he hasn't actually confirmed. It's believed to be somewhere between 300 and 500 million dollars. So not talking about a little amount here. Uh, now live events in addition each have a 25 million dollar purse. That's more than any PGA event. Plus in the PGA there's a, there's a weekend cut you have to make if you're going to get paid. You know only the top 65 players out there will continue for the third and fourth rounds. So those 65 get paid. They, usually there's like 100 players in an event. The ones that don't make the cut you don't get paid at all. Uh, live golf, they have no weekend cut. Everyone who comes gets paid and they usually get paid pretty handsomely. Now all that compared to his PGA earnings, he's ranked third in the world and in his seven years in the PGA he made a grand total of like 51 million dollars. So it really shows what a huge dis pay disparity is there between the PGA and live golf. All right, Dave Martin, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. Thank you guys. Yeah, thanks Dave. On this episode of Strong Mind and Body, we look at three easy ways to fortify our family bonds. Here's Gina Marie.
emotional health and well-being of your family is something that has to be regularly nurtured, especially if families are to withstand the political and cultural wins expected in the time ahead. Here are three simple ways to strengthen the most basic element of society, the family. Number one, spend more nights at home. In most families, it isn't unusual to be busy every night of the week. Johnny in basketball one night, Susie at dance the next, and Dan and Mom at the PTA meeting the third. But constantly running around soon wears people down. So ensure to clear your calendar and ensure that your family has at least two or three nights a week at home on a regular basis. Number two, take time for your spouse. It's often said that the best thing you can do for your kids is to love their father or mother. So set aside regular time to spend with your spouse. And don't be afraid to do it in front of your kids either. In doing so, you model the elements of a good marriage to your children. At the same time, you also need to give your relationship the fuel it needs to face challenges. Number three, make regular family goals. Nothing brings people together more than having a common goal to work toward. The same is true for a family. It doesn't have to be big either. Maybe just eating out at your favorite restaurant. Or it could be going to a local museum as a reward for chores completed, or a character quality cultivated in a child's life after a year. Perhaps it's something bigger such as money saved for a vacation or a tent purchased for camping. Either way, working together or making personal changes keeps a family from growing stagnant and complacent. Let's fortify ourselves by strengthening our individual families. This is one of the greatest weapons and fortresses we can have in this crazy world. Shen Yun Performing Arts took to the stage at the Detroit Opera House in Detroit, Michigan from February 23rd to the 25th. Find out why audience members are dazzled after seeing Shen Yun perform. Shen Yun Performing Arts graced the stage at the Detroit Opera House in Detroit, Michigan over the weekend. Audience members were highly impressed with Shen Yun's artistry. The performance is exquisite. It is majestic, it's beautiful, the dance is outstanding. The voices are wonderful. They are so entertaining and authentic. It's absolutely exquisite. The interaction between the dancers, the music, and the screen in the background, how it all ties together with such precision. It really is, uh, the best way to describe it is precision. It's, it's beauty and splendor all in one. Theatergoers applauded Shenyun's mission to revive 5,000 years of traditional Chinese culture and values and took note of a deeper message. Very hopeful. That's, that's what I would say. It was a message of hope and a message of restitution. Keep it going because otherwise communist China would probably erase it. So um, it's imperative that they keep the history going and let the rest of the world realize there was something before communist China. Bringing the message out there and keep on doing the great job they're doing. They're just phenomenal. They're extraordinary. Shenyun will be performing at the Adler Theater in Davenport, Iowa on February 27th. NTD News, Detroit, Michigan. Yeah, and even though Shen Yun is uh, portraying genuine Chinese culture, it can't perform in China, actually. Yeah, it's banned by the Chinese Communist regime there, as are some of the troupe. The, the members and the dancers there have uh, been driven out by persecution. So it's a very a special thing to watch to see these people on, on stage. But that's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. We'll be back with more stories tomorrow.